strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. The correlation between um, consumer uh, confidence and consumer spending is something that people are always watching. The experts are always watching because, as we know, if people are, are confident in their financial future, especially their their short-term future, they're more likely to spend money. Um, I, I use the illustration of you know big ticket items like buying a newer or new car. Um, if you are if you are not confident in your financial future, if you're not confident in your job security, you're probably not going to extend yourself. You're probably not going to take a vacation by putting it on a credit card. Big ticket items seem to be put on the back burner or at least delayed. Um, and so the story that I, I printed out from Zero Hedge talks about a, a, a lot of different things. The economy is a big part of it. Um, when offered opposing outcomes on each issue, eight in 10 U.S. adults think 2023 will be a year of economic difficulty with higher rather than lower taxes and a growing rather than shrinking budget deficit. More than six in 10 think prices will rise at a high rate and the stock market will fall in the year ahead, both of which happened in 2022. In addition, just over half of Americans predict that unemployment will increase to 20, in 2023, an economic problem for the U.S. that was spared in 2022. But so they are pessimistic across the board when it comes to facets of our economy. Bed Bath & Beyond plans more layoffs and they are also closing more stores. Two down, one to go is a headline over at KTAR.com. Bed Bath & Beyond moving ahead with Valley store closures. Um, we do see jobs coming to Arizona manufacturing jobs. There was a Chinese company that is uh, that manufactures solar panels that is coming to Arizona. We know there are other people that are making their way here. Are we insulated and how well insulated are we? Because there will be some industries. <clears throat> we saw the Bed Bath & Beyond closures here. There are going to be some industries that were not insulated from the downturn if there is a significant downturn. We know that the government is trying to slow the economy by raising interest rates, that they are trying to slow the economy down without stalling it or without sending it into a big reversal. Um, but we, as we've talked about this so often – it is one of those things uh, that is important. Um, I want you to hear uh, President Biden talking about rebuilding the economy. Now, this is at the summit where Mexico and Canada were presidents, uh, present. So I just want you to hear a little bit of what the president said about rebuilding economies. Since becoming president, I've been laser focused on rebuilding the U.S. economy from the bottom up and the middle out. And um, I think that there's a lot of people, myself included, that disagree with that. I have no doubt that the president believes that his policies are good for the economy. But what we are seeing is policies that are, in my opinion, are counterproductive to economic growth. Um, we continue to see tax increases. I, I've harped on this, and I've still yet to get somebody that agrees with the president to give me an answer on this. The president of the United States was very, very critical, has continued to be very, very critical of oil companies and food growers. Um, but specifically with the oil companies, he even went as far as to go after the middleman, the, the vendors, the people that sell you fuel, and telling them that they need to lower their prices for the good of America and stop profiteering because we were seeing the profit reports from the oil companies, and there's no doubt that they are making huge amounts of money. At the same time, the United States Treasury continues to take record revenue. 
and they continue to take record revenue. They continue to find new ways to spend money, what they call necessities, and then they come up with a tax plan that taxes rich Americans. In their mind, it's only going to be rich Americans that pay this, that wealthy Americans are going to pay more in taxes, and it's going to be redistributed, and it's going to be given to poorer Americans and make the economy better. And you see in this report, the American public believes overall we're all going to pay more taxes, and that's how it is. What I love about the the way this is is you can see the exact opposite happened in the state of Arizona. Arizona went in the other direction. Arizona, with its state legislature and its former governor in its financial plans, lowered taxes to a flat tax at a percentage rate that is much lower for all people in Arizona so that people in Arizona are paying a, a, a closer to a zero income tax. What we have seen in Arizona has been a huge economic growth. You go look in the East Valley and you look at the investment by Intel and the billions of dollars in chip manufacturing in the Far East Valley. You look at the brand new chip plant in the North Valley that has ballooned to, I believe, $40 billion in investment uh, by the time that project is done. You have other major corporations that have landed their headquarters here, or at least a piece of their manufacturing or distribution in, in Arizona. We're talking about high-tech, high-paying manufacturing jobs that are coming here because companies are seeing the land prices are fair. Our freeway system is good with a lot of room for expansion. We have everything from entry-level housing and rental all the way up it, up to and including um, we have property that is for the elite and the wealthiest of the wealthy. Everything is available to us, to them, and that's why they're coming here. And so that was not done by accident. That diversification and expansion of the economy in Arizona was intentional. So we can compare the position that Arizona is in when it comes to our ability to grow our economy and diversify our economy versus what the federal government is doing and the outlook from the American people. And and to me, that's more than anything. The older I get, listen, I'm not going to I'm not leaving my political leanings behind. I am still a staunch conservative. I am a fiscal conservative. I think government needs to be as small as possible. I think that's what benefits the people most. I like to see low taxes, low government spending. I like all of that. But ideologically, it doesn't have to be right or left all the time. But look at what works. Look at what's working in the state of Arizona. Somebody explained to me the philosophy from the federal government that says the oil companies are making obscene profits. So for the good of America, they should lower their prices. But the federal government takes in record revenue and they're still raising taxes on one segment of society. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. None. And yet that continues to be the philosophy that continues to be the mantra of the administration. We are we are going to see people paying more in taxes and it isn't going to be just the elite. It isn't going to be just the very wealthy, although that's what they keep saying. This is going to be costly for everyone. And in the end, when you start raising the minimum tax on businesses. The corporate income tax. You're talking about small businesses. You're talking about businesses that are already stretched at their bottom line with the cost of employees, with the cost of doing business, with supply chain issues and costs going up. So you factor in. Let's go with a small business like a restaurant. Just quickly, if you have a rest, a single family restaurant or even a chain where it's it's a group that owns multiple restaurants. 
Um, the cost of food has gone up dramatically. The cost of eggs has gone up even more than that, at least in the short term, until this avian flu thing is gone. But you look at that cost. You look at the cost of keeping employees employed. Now, on top of all of that, you're going to raise their minimum tax. Tell me how that's good for business and tell me how that is good for the country. And the answer is it just isn't. And yet there's a segment of society that goes along with it because in their mind, it's only punishing wealthy people. And, and I don't know. I don't know why it's a punishment. I don't know why we are punishing success. I think if the government were to get out of the way and when they do in the past, we've seen it when the government gets out of the way. Arizona has deregulated quite a bit. They have loosened regulations. It's better for business. It's better for everybody, even employees. And I just hope that's the direction we continue to go. Coming up in a moment, um, we have more information on the classified documents that were found in the president's office. Is there similarities to the Trump thing? What exactly did they find? Does this mean trouble for the for the president? Or is this just another story because Trump's documents, this is being brought out? We're going to talk about both of those things next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks again. Uh, appreciate you spending some time with the show. Uh, similar situations and how they're different when it comes to the classified documents found in the president's office. Some of them pertain to the UK, some of them about Ukraine, some of them about Iran, some of them labeled top secret according to sources. Is this a big deal? Um, and this is where the question lies, because what bothers me about this is the politics and how it invades. Um, if you are upset about Hillary Clinton, should you be upset about Donald Trump having documents? Um, you know, there was a slap on the wrist and no punishment whatsoever, although a list of laws that were broken by Hillary Clinton, she was never held accountable. Donald Trump's home was raided. So based on where you line up politically, you see one set of rules for the other. And, and, and this is it falls on both sides of the aisle. But in the end, as American people, who is controlling classified information? I talked about this yesterday about my my I guess I would say layman's knowledge of classified documents as explained to me by someone who has had a top level security clearance in his past. Um, and when you have a clearance, there is a room called a skiff where classified documents are. And you are get, given a notification that there are, there are documents in the skiff for you to read. And you go in there without any recording devices. It's illegal to take in a recording device. Whether you use it or not, you can't take it in. You leave everything outside. You read the documents. You commit things to your memory. You leave the documents there. You cannot remove the documents. Again, no matter what you do with them, taking them out of that room is illegal. And so there are a lot of checks and balances. And just because you have a clearance to go into the skiff doesn't mean you have clearance to read everything that's in that room. You read the things that pertain to you only. Um, and this is for people with security clearances and obviously for national security purposes. And when you see things like this happen, 
when the former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was playing fast and loose with documents on her computer and on a server that she erased. I don't care what side of the political hour you are, and it was a dumb thing to do. She completely erased that server, and she was never held accountable for it. There were classified documents that were found on the husband of Huma Abedin, who is – we know who Anthony Weiner is. We know what he was found guilty of. We know what he was doing on the computer. But his laptop contained documents he wasn't supposed to see. And they were there found when they investigated, when they looked into his laptop. So if, if nothing else, it was just somebody that was careless, whether it was illegal or whether it was something that needed to be punished. Um, it was very careless with classified documents, classified information. And information people weren't – the public was not supposed to see. And then you've got the Donald Trump thing. The FBI raided his home after months of negotiation with documents that they wanted back in the National Archives. The FBI went into his home and took boxes full of documents. And now you've got the president of the United States that had documents in his private office from when he was vice president of the United States, some of them labeled top secret. So we look at this and you got to wonder then, what does President Obama have? What does George W. Bush have? What did H.W. Bush have? What does Bill Clinton have? Are there documents that are gone or have been taken that are that are supposed to be kept in a very secure location? It's a good question. And how much does it really affect the American people? Or is it possible? Is this possible that the reason why this story has become a big story is because of the big deal they made with Donald Trump? Did somebody overplay their hand? That was always the indication was that, you know, um, there was no need to, to raid his home with lights and sirens and weapons and bulletproof vests and racing into his home to take boxes, that that was obviously a statement to make this look like it was much bigger than it really was. Well, then you get this. What could have been one line somewhere or never even reported to the media now has become a big deal. The story says the similarities at its basic level both involve official files bearing classification markings that improperly accompanied Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden after they left office. Uh, under the Presidential Records Act, White House records are supposed to go to the National Archives and Record Administration once an administration departs. Private citizens generally lack authorization to hold classified documents and regulations require such files be stored securely. So that's a similarity. They're saying it's different, and and they're saying there are differences as well. But you know that you may not carry a classification, a top-secret classification, for a lifetime. There are many people that have to reapply to get a security clearance, that you have to make sure that you are cleared to see certain things. There are levels of those classifications, and it isn't something that you always have. Sometimes you're temporarily given a clearance for something, and this is all for national security purposes. And once that clearance is gone from you, then you no longer have the need for those documents, nor do you have the right to have them or view them. So in the end, this is uh, more questions for me than answers. Is this just they over they overstated things? They overdid things when it came to Donald Trump with the raid on his house. And now because that was a big story, this becomes a big story. If should both of them had been a slap on the wrist, what do you do and give the documents back? And it's just a question. Or is it a case where some very serious national secrets were on the desks of the former president or in the offices of the former president and now the current president when he was vice president? Just an interesting conversation. Um, 
The proposal to waive the educational spending cap here in Arizona has uh, is back on the table. We had a conversation about this earlier, but some more of the fallout from this. What are the ramifications if this is not handled? We're going to talk about how important this is, and you're going to hear from some people that know how important it is next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with the show. It is, uh, Arizona is kind of been ground zero for a lot of different things, and we have been now, uh, school choice has become uh, a big thing in Arizona. We are kind of the gold standard around the country, and others are maybe following suit with giving parents more opportunity for school choice. But um, regardless of what parents are able to do with the money for schools and what the tax dollars attached to their children, um, we understand that spending more money on the schools can be beneficial, paying teachers more. But we have allocated so much more money in recent years to schools, and many people still believe it's not enough. But there is no doubt that we have added more money to spending in schools, that we have tripped a, a, uh, a limit on expenditures. It is the aggregate expenditure limit on schools, and which means that there was a law that was passed in the 1980s by a ballot proposition that limits that aggregate spending. And so unless there is a two-thirds majority of the House and the Senate that override this, there is over about $1.2 billion that has already been allocated in the budget. This is not extra spending for schools that cannot be spent. So people are upset. They should be upset. There are people saying that they're going to Work on this, that they're going to try to get this done very, very quickly so that the school districts can rest easy and know that that money will be there available to them to spend on the districts as they have budgeted for it. Um, there, are a lot of con- there are a lot of concerns in the public school system. There are some changes that are coming, and uh, we're reaching out. We're going to try to have a conversation. We'd love to have a conversation with the governor as soon as she possibly can and talk to her about her education plans. But we also are reaching out to uh, the superintendent of public instruction, Tom Horn, who had the job once before, was elected to the position again and how there might be competing ideologies and what goes on in the classrooms and schools in Arizona and how he's going to work with the governor with his plans that he wants to implement and what schools need to do. But we know that the governor's focus on teachers and some other areas are going to be different than the previous administration. Is different going to be better? That's something all of us want. I'll be honest with you. I I don't I know what I believe needs to happen with schools, what we all want to happen with schools. Um, but what we all want is for our children to have a quality education uh, in the end. And it's not just my children. It's the children um, giving kids the tools to learn. That's the biggest part of an early education is giving them the tools to learn. You know, I'm 55 years old. I, I Education is more important to me now than ever before. I would love to go back to school and get a degree. I would love to. I don't have a degree. And it's always been a source of disappointment. As I got older, I wish I did. The discipline to do the coursework, to get a degree in whatever field, po- political science, whatever. I American history would be something I would love a degree in. Um 
And it's become more important in my age. So whether you're 18 years old and know you want to go into college and what exactly what you want to do, or you're 18 years old or even 16 years old looking at one of the CTEDs and saying, I want to go into a certain course of profession where I know if I can get a certification, it's going to help me. You want to be you're someone that has decided that you want to be a cosmetologist or someone that wants to be an uh, EMT or you want to go into one of the classic trades that you get that skill set as early as possible in your life. And for other people, it happens later. For other people, they kick around, they have a job, not necessarily a career. But when they find the direction of the career they want, they need to have the skill set to learn. And that's what we all want. So I want you to hear just um, just a little bit of how serious this is, this, this aggregate expenditure limitation. Uh, this is an ABC family report on what the school districts could lose if this is not overridden. Depending on the school district's size, schools could be forced to cut anywhere from hundreds of thousands of dollars to over $80 million worth of funding from their budget come April 1st of this year. This could mean furloughs, layoffs, and even school closure. Now, you know, I will... Um I'm always going to talk about the direction of schools and the need to make sure children can read. First and foremost, that is a basic skill that every person needs in order to have a good education. Um, but it's, it's a well-rounded education as well, and we have the ability to do that, and we should be laser-focused on it. I'm going to talk about the prioritization and the other curriculums that come in, and if you've got a lack of, an, uh, of money, if you have lack of funds in a school, you have to be even more careful to be dialed in on the core curriculum. I'll talk about that forever, but when you have a situation like this, how do you get this taken care of as quickly as possible? Because it is a political football, and it shouldn't have to be, but it is. And it was created again by our propositional form of government, which I continue to complain about because I just think it's lazy. I don't like it, and this is an example of why, and I hope you'll look into it, of why we are doing things the way we do things and how this is holding up the entire process. It doesn't make any sense. What we're going to do in a moment is we're going to talk about um, the Phoenix Police Department and their new policy on use of force. They are asking the public to weigh in. They want public input on their use of force. So I'll, I'll describe to you how you can weigh in if you'd like to, what they're asking the public for, and why it might be necessary. So all that's going to be coming up here in just a couple of moments, so please stick around. And strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with me this morning. Uh, the Phoenix Police Department put out a press release saying they are looking for public input. Now, the public input period will begin. Um, uh, it begins actually next week on January 17th, and it will go until January 31st. And they're asking for public input on their new policy of use of force. And so the policy on use of force is not complete. There are other things in it, but they did talk about this. The principles, they said, uh, sanctity of human life. Employees shall make every effort to preserve human life in all situations. Value and worth of all persons. Employees must shall respect and uphold the value, rights, liberty, and dignity of all persons at all times. Use of force, reasonable, necessary, and proportional. Now, I want to read this carefully. Employees shall use only the force that is reasonable, necessary, and proportional to effectively and safely resolve an incident. 
the employee will immediately reduce the level of force as the threat or resistance diminishes. This is where I think that it's tough sometimes for the for the public to wrap their arms around, to wrap their, their mind around what's happening. Um, that's a difficult thing, and I, I, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I want you to think about, and that the police train on controlling their emotions. They, can, they train in so many different ways, and I've just been privileged to see it. I've never gone through it. I'm not a police officer, never have been, but I've watched them train. Simple things like you know that people tend to get tunnel visioned. And so when a police officer is involved in a chase where speeds increase, they train to keep their peripheral vision, to see what's going on around them because they're traveling at higher rates of speed. When they're involved in a foot chase, they are also trained to keep their peripheral vision because when you somebody runs across the street, you're so tunnel visioned on the person you're chasing, you can run out in front of a car and get hit. So they train for situations like that, de-escalation of their own emotions. Um, I've seen this actually happen before at a, at a scene that I was doing a ride along and there I was not a part of a high speed chase, but there was a high speed chase that happened through the streets of Phoenix during rush hour traffic. And at the end of the chase, there were a couple of car thieves that tried to run over a couple of thieves that tried to run over some police officers. And when they were caught. They were removed from the vehicle. Handcuffs were put on these two young kids. They were put in the back of a police car. And then I watched cops kind of walk away into a couple of different directions. And they were flexing their hands, opening and closing their hands. They were doing exercises to reduce their emotions. The you know So the adrenaline rush to get rid of that adrenaline and then go back to being professional police officers. It takes training. But when you're involved in an aggressive situation, when you're involved with somebody that's maybe intoxicated or someone that's had a mental break or someone that is just emotionally charged up, a domestic violence situation, whatever it might be, when you intervene, if you have resistance, sometimes it's not easy to understand how far that person's going to go until it's too late. So the public... I think a lot of us get a picture on television, shoot the gun out of the guy's hand or or shoot somebody in the leg or and it's it, it's an impossibility. Now, I'm not making excuses. We all know bad behavior when we see it. We all know an overreaction when we see it. We understand that human beings overreact. But. You also have to understand the other side of this, and I hope there's some education to the public that comes with this, because a lot of us make the mistake of believing that the way you and I might act in an interaction with the police is a normal reaction to people. And I will tell you, I've witnessed it, that it isn't always the case. People are rude. That doesn't mean violence should be, you know, they shouldn't act violently toward you. People are rude. People are disrespectful. People are uncooperative. And police officers have to navigate that. I've watched police officers take verbal abuse that you and I would never be asked to take, never be asked to tolerate. And it happens all the time. They take it as part of the job. And I'm not saying it isn't, but it's something that all of us have to consider, not just with use of force, but just in the everyday elements of a job that a police officer does. You know, you and I get pulled over. I will tell you exactly what I do when I get pulled over. Um, I put all of my windows down so that they can see into the back of my vehicle as well. I make sure my hands are visible either on the frame of the door or on my steering wheel. I don't reach for any documents until a police officer orders me to or asks 
asks me for whatever, you know, driver's license, proof of insurance. I don't move until they tell me. I always inform them that I have a firearm in the truck and where the firearm is. I may not be required to do it, but I want them to know that I'm concerned that they feel safe. That's the way I handle it. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. Whatever it is, I'm respectful. And we all think that when you're pulled over, that's the way people respond. And I can tell you from doing just simple ride-alongs with police officers, that's not the case. There are many people that are rude and disrespectful, and it's confrontational from the word go. And a verbal confrontation doesn't lead to violence. But you also don't know what an agitated person is going to do. That's the other part of the unknown of police work. I was just watching a video this morning. Coincidentally, it came up again in my in my feed this morning. There is a police officer that had a young man at a traffic stop. Kid blew a stop sign and the kid was respectful and the kid was on the phone with his mother because he couldn't find a current insurance card. And the kid was being doing everything the right way. A car was coming in the opposite direction. And stopped a few feet past this traffic stop in the opposite lane in this guy in a sedan. And the police officer looked at this guy and said, who are you? What do you want? And this guy launches himself out of this car with a hatchet in his hand and attack the police officer. And in an instant, this police officer had to go from a civil infraction and a conversation with a polite young man to being attacked with a hatchet where he had to defend himself with gunfire. And it happened in a split second without any warning. So we have to be reasonable as the public, too, to understand that the unknown to a police officer happens a lot more. That nightmare scenario happens a lot more often to them than any one of us. We've all been in scenarios with people, I think, at least we've had conversations with people where we think, wow, that escalated quickly. You know, you have a conversation started with somebody and all of a sudden it's a full-blown argument. I thought there for a minute I was getting into a fist fight. That's on a daily basis with the police. They are always have to be uh, worried about self-protection, protection of their fellow officers and protection of innocent people like you and I. So when the public gives input on this, I hope there's reasonable input. But I wish there was some kind of education for all of us where we could see a little bit more completely what they face. It wouldn't change a standard of meeting force with force. The difficult part is when the when it when it de-escalates. So if somebody wants to fight, and we've seen this, I don't know if you've seen it, but a high-speed chase. Someone takes off from the police. They're causing crashes. They're doing all kinds of other things. And then they decide they're going to jump out of the car and lay on the ground. Your adrenaline is going 1,000 miles an hour, and you just watched this person almost kill 14 people with the way they were behaving. Now, a police officer is required to get rid of all of that emotion and take, it, and take this person for what they are now, which is compliant. It's not easy. It's not easy for them to do. And I just hope that we, you know, we have in our minds, we're reasonable. Think about what you would do if somebody was trying to kill you or kill your friends, and then they said, okay, I quit. I give up. How likely are you to not stay amped up? I'm not making an excuse. I'm saying we have to understand as much as we can without being in that situation what an officer or what a deputy or what a trooper endures. Self-preservation is number one. That's for all of us. We all have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I just hope it's taken into consideration when this is uh, when when this is all said and done in this use of force that we hold people to a reasonable standard. 
Coming up after 11 o'clock, we go back to the economy, the pessimism of the U.S. public, and the people are concerned about many facets of the economy. What will that do to spending in this year? We'll talk about that next.